Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. Welcome to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock you know, fire, combustibles, a banger. Today, we will be spinning back over 20 years to talk about the 1998 hit album by Ani DeFranco, Little Plastic Castle. In a coffee shop in a city, which is every coffee shop in every city, on a day. Which is every day I picked up a magazine Which is every magazine uh, In retrospect, 1998 feels like a music year in transition. In the mainstream, the surge of alternative music energy that had powered the first half of the 90s was starting to fizzle. Below the radar, the underground was healthy, and there were many great records that defined this era and remain timeless. That's from Pitchfork Magazine, from the 50 Best Albums of 1998. Also, 1998 in music was all over the place. Gully, a trip. Uh, That's a quote from me directly. (laughs) Who can forget how torn Natalie Imbruglia was? Monica and Brandy's ridiculous quibble over some boy. The fact that Aerosmith didn't want to miss nothing. That big pun, if given the choice, preferred crushing to playing and that Wyclef would be gone till November. Those were hits, big hits. Tickets to the amusement park known as Music Celebrity. But across town though, while we were sleeping on her, Ani DeFranco had strummed together 12 tracks of observations from a fishbowl with a little plastic castle inside. The album, a fan favorite and one that earned a Grammy nod was according to Ani, a reaction to the reaction to the reaction to fame, her newfound notoriety, the scale of her tour, and people at the shows. Imagine that. Imagine being over fame before social media, before TMZ, before hot takes, before Coachella. She knew what it was, but she knew who she was. In her words, a pixie, a paper doll, 32 flavors, and then some. She knew that relationships were complicated, like on Loom and Independence Day, that acceptance is ultimately worth the challenge towards it, like on As Is, that innocence is fleeting and addiction is hell, like on two little girls. And so to that end, I found the album to be insightful and prophetic. Because maybe she knew early on that what lay ahead for Amy and Whitney and Brittany. Neo-folk, acoustic rock, blues, coffee shop punk, whatever, it's all of that. But massively appealing. Shout out to Gangstar. In my opinion, Little Plastic Castles isn't just for humanities majors or girls who went to Smith. Maybe it's for those dodging stones thrown from glass houses, for popular outsiders, or for those who would say, as A.J. Benza often did, fame, ain't it a bitch? Little Plastic Castle was the album pick of our special guest today. About four years ago, Jesse Thorne, the pod father of the Maximum Fun Network, invited me to join him and a few folks for a drink in a mid-city bar. Jesse had cooked up an idea for a new podcast, a pop culture panel show that would eventually be named Pop Rocket, and it was at that bar on La Brea where I was first introduced to the host of this fledgling show, Guy Branham. In the two years that I was privileged to be part of the Pop Rocket team, I got to bathe in the majesty of Guy's wisdom and insight on a weekly basis. In our small little black box of a studio, 
I witnessed his incredible ability to quip on a dime, not to mention admire his taste in Ralph Lauren dress shirts. But mostly, I marveled at what he knew about pop culture, and that was only exceeded by his deep, generous compassion that he showed toward the topics and subjects that we discussed. It's an honor to have him on our show. Guy Branham, welcome to Heat Rocks. I wear Ralph Lauren because it's one of the three options at the gigantic man store. <laughs> you, you wear it well. I do my best. So, Guy, you're such a pop polymath that I really would not have tried to make any prediction about what album you'd want to talk about today. So it's not that I was so much surprised by this, but I wasn't necessarily expecting that you'd pick an Andy DeFranco album either. So what is it about this album that you wanted to talk about? Well, it's, it's funny. I mean, Oliver had to deal with my deeply poppy, corporate, mainstream taste for two years, and he, like, he managed it very well. Uh, so, like, <laughs> when trying to think about the album that I love most, my mind did go through dorky options and very poppy options and that sort of thing. But I don't think that there's been an album that, like, I listen to in its entirety and means things to me in its entirety as much. Like, it, it hit me at just the right time with just the right sort of thoughts to really be something and the right level of, like, gentle sellout poppiness. Like, this is the moment when Ani DeFranco leaves behind the teeming armies of lesbians who loves her and engages in the first of her multiple marriages to men. Um, and, you know, is like a year before this on the My Best Friend's Wedding soundtrack. Uh, so there is this beautiful mix of pop and sort of like individual perspective on the album that I, I just love. We ask this all the time on the show. How did you come to know this album? She has 18 studio albums. You picked the ninth one. How'd you come to know this one? This is the only Ani DeFranco album that I listened to. I purchased one other album of hers, the album immediately after it, and then was just like, nah. Um, I was in law school in Minnesota during like that very specific period of our past when you had about 50 channels, um, and I was sad. It was either immediately before or immediately after me coming out. And there was like a HBO filmed half hour sort of concert. Uh, and I caught it like halfway through and it was like good music and I was enjoying it. And then I heard the song Swan Dive and I just, <laughs> I specifically heard the line, I've got better things to do than survive. And I was like, I knew I would need to know more about this. That moment sort of like struck something in me and then I fell in love with the album. And before this, this girl who had been um, involved in Berkeley politics while I was there, she had gone on and on about how we should get Ani DeFranco should co to come to the campus. And so that was all I knew of Ani DeFranco uh, was that uh, Renee Dahl wanted her to come to Berkeley too much. <laughs> Shout out to UC Berkeley politics of the 
mid-late 1990s where Guy and I overlapped, though, of course, didn't know each other at the time. Let's be clear. Renee Dahl has a law degree from Harvard and is currently a doula. That's everything you need to know about Berkeley. <laughs> I love that you know this. I may be a gay man, but I understand that it's important to have at least one doula in your life. <laughs> I came to know uh, Ani DeFranco before this album. So this album just passed me by. I heard her do a song called 32 Flavors. Yeah. And I saw that in a video and I was like, you know, I was like, I like the song. I don't, I'm not sure how I feel about the, the, the French braids, the pink French braids, but I'm going to let you make it because I like I'm the song. you and your ambition. I am a poster girl with no poster. I am 32 flavors and then some. And I'm beyond your peripheral vision. So you might want to turn your head. Because someday you are going to get hungry. And eat most of the words you just... I like what she was saying about her appearance, not judging her by her appearance and just what you saw on the outside. So I think even back then, Ani was sort of telling us who she was before this whole thing happened to her, before the live album that blew her up and right before. What is it, do you think, uh, appealed, to, appealed to you about Ani DeFranco at that time? This song does a great job of, of putting it out there. It is queer lusciousness at a point in time when we weren't doing that, that much that queer women weren't doing it, like weren't allowed by our society to do it that much. Uh, and I think that like, she did such a good job of balancing multiple ideas in the stuff that she explored um, and acknowledging them and not feeling the need to, to judge them, but also coming from a place of like, <laughs> Empowerment and richness. Right. Love is a piano drop from a four-story window when you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I don't like your girlfriend, you know why blame her? Never seen one of your lovers do you so much harm. I came to know uh, Andy DeFranco this past week when I was getting ready for the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> Anyone who knows my general musical tastes, uh, twangy, acoustic, singer-songwriter stuff, uh, folk pop, really folk punk, I should say, not my conventional wheelhouse. So the upside is that I really got to give myself a crash course lesson in uh, all things Annie. And uh, she was always big amongst a lot of my friends, especially fellow music critics, for people who apparently found Alanis Morissette too mainstream, like DeFranco was there for you. And... <laughs> It's to the extent where on, uh, in 1998, so 98 was a very big year for her, she appeared on King of the Hill starring <laughs> as Emily, the, quote, feminist guitar teacher. You said you wanted stuff with strong lyrics? That's right, but no cursing and no cop killing. I'm sorry, but that is just how I was raised. Well, maybe you ought to try writing a song of your own, Peggy. I bet a woman in your situation would have a lot to say. And what situation is that? Well, you know, having to give up your life's work to make things easier for the rest of your family. Yeah, I suppose a situation like that should make me want to sing. Oh, come to think of it, yesterday, the oddest little tune popped into my head. Sort of silly, but, well, you'll tell me if you think there's something to it. <clears throat> there once was a turtle that lived in her shell. The shell was her home and her prison as well. <laughs> Whoa, there's definitely something to that. Really? But thank you. So, Guy, I'm wondering, to the extent that 
that DeFranco really fits into, in a broader way, a community of other similar artists. You think of Liz Fair, you think of Sarah McLaughlin, the Indigo Girls, but she always seemed to be like the connoisseur's choice that if you are going to be down with anyone in that sort of little uh, fair sphere, she was always the coolest of the bunch. What to you was it about her that singled her out in that fashion? Well, I mean, what's hard about this, Oliver, is that I'm not somebody who cares about that kind of legitimacy, as you well know. And I think that Ani DeFranco's willingness to release all of those albums independently, but still also get on the My Best Friend's Wedding soundtrack (laughs) sort of explains why people loved her, but also had a complex relationship with her, because... You know, this is the one album I know her from, and this is the album where she is spending too much time talking about whether she's a sellout or not because the lesbian community has said, hey, what are you doing over there femming out like that? Um, And, you know, I I do think it presages sort of like millennial approach to culture in a really interesting way. I mean, going back and looking at this album, I was struck by the fact that, like, nothing that happened in 1998 or 1999 mattered. Like, it was just this weird sort of, like, um, interstitial zone where things were kind of nice and we had boy bands and a decent economy and Clinton (laughs) wasn't going to be impeached. Um, um, But I I think, you know, um, she went hardcore and honest, but her honesty... Oh, there's a very funny uh, stand-up comedian, a gay male stand-up comedian uh, named John Early, who has a really great moment in in his, like, uh, one-person show uh, where he says, why is my honesty less honest because it's wearing a wig? Sort of, like, counterposing his queer performance with sort of, like, straight guy anti-performativity... And I think um, one of the great things about Ani DeFranco is she was willing to put her... Like, sometimes her honesty needed to be expressed in a wig. Sometimes was it being expressed in uh, braids that she didn't necessarily need to be wearing? Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, it's it's interesting that that her fans would would call her a sellout. If you think about the pantheon of, of female artists around that time in that, in that crew, you got Sean Colvin, Tori Amos, Natalie Merchant, uh, Tracy Chapman, Cheryl Crow, Joan Osborne, Jewel, Paula Cole, Liz Fair. Ani's on some other shit. And so I'm really surprised that people would be like, oh, she's compared to that group that she would be considered a sellout. Yeah, I mean, her music has sold less insurance and soda than those other, than many of those other women's songs have. Um, but again, that is like, it's sort of not a level of legitimacy that I worry about. I understand that people need to pay their bills and have probably deferred a lot of, you know, being an artist costs a lot of money and involves a lot of bad credit along the way. I understand that people need to be able to, like, live from their art if they can. But, you know, I I think that, yeah, it is a little bit weird that people yelled at her for selling out, but so much of it was about, like being a declared queer person and her expression of that queerness and her performance of gender. And so much of, like, I I think that this album is a beautiful essay that is talking about relationships and it's talking about fame, but it's also really exploring performance of gender. And it, like, it feels a little whiny. I mean, there there are ways where it really is, like, 
we get it. You know, like people have opinions about who you are. Uh, but I also think there's something so nice about somebody writing songs um, about just where they are right then. Like, the Dixie Chicks Not Ready to Make Nice is one of the best songs that they ever produced. And all that is is them saying, leave us the fuck alone. Right. And, you know, I think sometimes you do really publicly need to say, leave me the fuck alone. Like, this is a choice that I made. I, I think particularly for women, because everybody thinks that they get to have an opinion about you. And there's also something really interesting about Ani DeFranco's place in the, the queer community of like, at a point in time when we didn't have that many like representative figures who were out, sure. everybody feeling like they own a piece of her. Um, and I have conflicted feelings about the declaration of you don't own me, because it's also like, well, you're all we've got, right. you know? Right. Life just keeps getting harder And it just keeps getting harder to hide The darker it is around me The easier it is to see inside Listening to this album again, I was struck by the ways that this being the, the period of the ska revival like, there is a bounciness <laughs> to this album that is, like, ever so gently boss tonesy, you know? I think I read at least more than one review that talks about the album having mariachi horns, and I listened to this a couple of times, and yes, it does have a, a, a robust horn section. I don't know if I would describe it as mariachi no, horns. Right, no. no, to me it was way more an Orange County of yeah. horn section. <laughs> Shout out to Orange County. Oh, man. Well, you've already started talking a little bit about this, but I do think one of the distinguishing things about the album, as, as both of you are talking about, is that it belongs within the pantheon of other pop albums in which the artists recording them are responding to their own, their own fame, right? And so uh, this includes everything from the Beatles with Beatles for Sale back in the 1960s. I always think of Jay-Z's The Black Album. Mm -hmm. Lady Gaga had the fame. And, of course, who among us can forget the, the classic in this, in this category, which is uh, David Cassidy's 1975, <laughs> The Harder They Rise. I, sorry, The Higher They Climb, I should say. I guess, the, I guess life with the Partridge family was a lot rougher than we realized. Um, I was going to ask, Guy, as, as a famous person yourself, I'm wondering, to, what is your relationship to talking about one's own fame? Because on the one hand, I do think that it can be cathartic to be able to talk about that experience but there's always the risk of it being slightly navel-gazing, or maybe more than slightly navel-gazing. Well, I mean, the thing is, is, I'm barely famous, but also, let's be honest, Ani DeFranco was, like, niche famous in 1998. Like, I always, in my head, it's not so much that, like, magazines were having these opinions about her as just sort of, like, the complex network of lesbian gossip that runs the country was sort of saying, like, but what... She's wearing that shade of lipstick? No! She's not allowed at the women's, Michigan Women's Music Festival. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that um, generally it is like boring and uninteresting to other people to hear you be like, wow, lots of people have opinions about me. And I also, you know, it's like, so many of us these days participate richly in a culture of commentary and criticism and I understand that, like, in 1998, when I felt powerless in this media landscape, I tore at things, and I had opinions, and I had sort of, like, strong takes. And it is very hard, but it is my goal at this point in time to when people come for me, especially 
when it is angry little gay boys in the Midwest who are like, ugh, at, at me and me being on television, I have to be like, would I be doing anything different if I were in the same situation? I think when you feel powerless, you try to use like commentary and criticism to assert power over the media world that, that you live in. Um, and you just have to accept that. Like, I like democracy. I think lots of people get to have opinions. And a lot of the, and if I'm putting myself out there, if I'm going on a goddamn television show, people get to have lots of opinions about me. Most of those opinions are, uh, he's too fat to be the gay person on that show, or he's too gay to be the gay person on that show. Um, but also, I'm willing to deal with that. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the match game. Our contestants, Eneke and James, from the hit podcast, Minority Corner. Hey. I'll ask you questions in a rapid-fire round. Favorite character on a Shonda Rhimes show? Olivia Pope. Ooh, I said Olivia Pope's wig. Mm. Oh, so close. How do you feel about Disney? They need to pay reparations to black people because Mickey Mouse was based off of blackface. I said get rid of the racist rides, Jungle Cruise, Splash Mountain. Mm. Who are you voting for in the primary? It's too damn early. I'm just getting to know these fools. Mm. Ooh, no dice. What celebrity do you side-eye the most. Kevin Hart. Can we get a real apology for your homophobia? Justin Timberlake. Nipplegate. Favorite superhero movie? Black, Black Panther. Panther. Wakanda, Wakanda forever. forever. Congratulations, but you still lose. Now I'm side-eyeing you. you. Catch Eneke and James, the Wonder Twins of Podcast, on Minority Corner every Friday at Maximum Fun. So you want to understand what's going on in the world. But trying to keep up with the news can be such a headache. With clickbait headlines, TV news acting like there's always two equal sides to every story. And never enough talk about the various McDonald Playland characters. Okay, in my defense though, when I brought that up, we learned a lot. That's true. <laughs> I'm Brent Black. I'm Courtney Enlow. And I'm Travis McElroy. With Trends Like These. Real life friends talking internet trends. We debunk misleading headlines from the top trending news. We always throw in at least one positive story. But we call out bullshit when we see it. Join us each week on MaximumFun.org. Because with trends like these... Who needs any memes? Ah? Uh? Ah? Uh? <laughs> yeah, that was great. I wanted to uh, get into some of the specifics of the album as we do. Um... One of my favorite tracks uh, on here, well, I'll get to that one later, but one of, one of my favorite tracks was Fuel. It had to grow, grow on me. I had to listen to it a couple of times in prep for this chat because I was like, what'd she just say? So Fuel was one that when it started, I didn't know where she was going. They were digging a new foundation in Manhattan and they discovered a slave cemetery there. May their souls rest easy now that lynching is frowned upon. We've moved on to the electric chair. And I wonder who's gonna be president, Tweedledum or Tweedledum. And so I thought, okay, so this is gonna be some, and about the electric chair, I thought this is gonna be about capital punishment, this is gonna be about the, the shame of the history of race in this country. And then later on she starts talking about they used to make records. And it felt to me like she was talking about our tendency to forget all kinds of history, not just the shame of the stain of racism, but also how real music used to get, to get made. What were your impressions of, of that song? Fuel is such a weird song because it's this, <laughs> usually songs that are about rage are about that rage coming to the fore. There's something like You Ought to Know where yeah. it is somebody giving the fullness of themselves. And this song is just about um, the, the shit that hasn't come to a head. Like the, the, <laughs> the fact that America 
has all of this fuel underneath it and hasn't descended to a race war. And sort of like, there's there's something interesting about the way that she pulls that back to the personal uh, at the end of the day. And I think that there's something so honest about that. Other people might not like that because you're taking these like big ideas that don't belong to her and sort of like playing with them and then pulling them back to what's personal. But I think that that's the most honest way of dealing with it. Um, you know, like she's, She's talking about living in a world that is sort of like constantly distracting us and commodifying us and all of that stuff. And just the fact that like um, you have all of this shit that hasn't come to a head, that, that has not um, given you catharsis, but is still fucking with you every day. Right. And, and meanwhile, we're, cross, we're doing cross-marketing and glomming over what's really there. Yeah. yeah. So that is... Uh, Fuel is Morgan's fire track. Guy, what is your fire track off this album? Um, My fire track off of this album (laughs) is Swan Dive. Swan Dive is a hell of a song. Swan Dive starts out, and it is a very physical song about, you know, sex with another person. And then there's this moment, like, a minute ten in. I don't know if this is what I'm supposed to talk about at Oliver. Oliver was like... What's the moment from the album you love most? <laughs> and like, there's like a minute 10 of queer intimacy and queer depression. And then there's this moment where the keyboards come in and queer imagination begins. And she starts pushing outside of the world that has been assigned to her. And she starts contemplating like taking risks. There's to be more. And this boy I'm in Say, call me crazy if I fail All the chance that I need Is one in a billion and they could call me brilliant If I succeed It's such a beautiful articulation of queer worldview because we don't have the same consequences and continuity that straight people do. We essentially, there's not a religion that wants us. We're not going to have babies with the people who we love. So what are we doing now? What are you doing now to make your life meaningful? And she's going to pull out her tampon and start splashing around. Like, she's going to explore this world under her own terms. She's got better things to do than survive. And that, to me, is a revolutionary statement that that is putting spark to the fuel you know saying i've got better things to do than survive and i think for me realizing that i i had better things to do than survive really like helped change the course of my life it's so subtle when you mentioned to me uh, over text this is the moment that you wanted to talk about i went to listen to the song and in the, on first pass i couldn't even really pick up that little whine in the background, but as it grows and grows, then you can kind of reverse engineer and realize where it starts. But it, it's, I mean, it's such a subtle catch. Uh, it gives me chills every time I listen to it. Um, it's such a beautiful, perfect shift to this story is not going to be uh, <laughs> like glum. This story is not going to be a tragedy. This is going to be my story that I'm going to define and I'm going to make choices that other people are going to think is stupid. And I don't give a shit. 
Um, and that subtlety is what is so magical about it because one of the things that you talked about is when sort of like the big band drops in Little Plastic Castle, mm-hmm. which is another point where she's saying like, okay, this, this life before me, this queerness before me, is it going to be dull or fun? And she says, I'm going to be gay. She doesn't literally say I'm going to be gay, but she chooses gayness uh, in, in both cer- senses of the, of the term. And this one is just so infectious because like, um, it's not, it's not a corner that you turn. It is an awakening to the world. Uh, and I love the way that that song affects me where I don't even realize that it's happening until it's happening. It's like the hair on my arm tells me that mm. that wine has started, mm. not my ear, you know? And for you, Morgan, your favorite song was Fuel, but your favorite moment off the album actually comes from a different song. Uh, it's Gravel. I feel like I see a different side of, of Ani. Like, she turns all the way up. Like, Ani is hot. She, whatever happened with, uh, with, with whoever she's talking about, she throws them under the bus as being a, a terrible, you know, their head game is terrible. Everything's terrible about the experience with them. And it was just a side that I didn't, you know, I love seeing. It was the most Alanis Morissette song on here. It's the most, like, you ought to know without, like, the weird hair and those facial expressions that Alanis, Alanis used to make. But also, it was a side of her that I didn't, I had not expected. It was very aggressive. It was like, Ani, are you okay? Because she turned up to that level. The fact that she is able to put it in the same place, I adore you and I abhor you. So wonderful. I have always loved those songs like Dolly Parton to You Come Again, or Nobody uh-huh. Does It Better, that are woman contemplating man who is so difficult, but also he hits all the right spots. So what are you gonna do with him? And he didn't hit all the right spots in this song. She said he was a terrible leg. Yes, yes, no. He hit, he hit a few spots. No, he, uh, did, he I, didn't hit the ones that needed I, to be hit. I think, like, I think that this is a song. I do deeply believe that this is a song about a man. But I also think there's something wonderful that this queer woman is like giving that that song to a man who can't <laughs> fuck her right, but is doing other things really right. 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 One t-shirt and two socks. I keep my hands warm in your pockets. You can use the engine lock and we'll ride out to California with my arms around your chest and I'll pretend that this is real because this is what I like best. You've been juggling two women like a stupid circus clown telling us both we are the one. For my favorite moment off this LP... The, initially, I thought it might be, and I, Guy, you just mentioned this a moment ago, it's the moment on the title track which starts the album where you, it, it, the song starts off, starts off very quiet and then the band drops in. Mm-hmm. And it clearly is designed to be this moment where you don't expect it and it hammers in you're like, wow. But that said, it's actually a lyrics. Uh, it, the, my favorite one was actually a lyric and it's off of Independence Day. Mm. And I don't like think love is like war but I got a big hot cherry bomb and I want to slip it through the mail slot of your front door now you can't leave me here and it's mostly because the first time I heard the song I was kind of half listening to it and so all I heard was cherry bomb and that made me think of of fireworks growing up as a kid but then I'm like wait is this is this a sexual innuendo so I had to rewind it and kind of go back to it 
And while it may not be nearly as elegant as, in my mind, Nina Simone talking about, I want some sugar in my bowl, there's just something about like the cherry bomb uh, imagery, the idea of the mail slot in the front door. I mean, it's very salacious, but in, in a way that is, again, there's kind of a subtlety to it, at least maybe because I was listening to it at the middle distance the first time through. But it's the part where every time I'm listening to Independence Day and it gets to that point, I'm like, that's, that's, that's a nice moment right there. Yeah, I love that song, and I love the feeling that, that there's a potential for something to go down on the roof. They're sitting on the roof on the 4th of July. Yeah. I just think that's hot. I love that part of the song. Sleepless and embarrassed about the way that I feel Trying to make molehills out of mountains Building base camp at the bottom of a really big deal Did I ever tell you how I stopped eating? I wanted to go back quickly to Fuel that I forgot to mention. One of the best parts of that song is Ani DeFranco dropping bars. And it, was, it wasn't a concept that I had really embraced before, like folk hip-hop. I was like, that's weird. That will never happen. And then I Googled folk hip-hop. And I came across this dude named Disraeli and this song. One, two, three, four. Who's this? Another rapper with a messiah complex Thinking when I write a concept it stops the nonsense But God chuckles, so I let go Playing African drums in the car park of Tesco My heart is vast and growing I speak in paradigms, casting poems out Did the drab and the drizzle So folk hip-hop is alive and well I just uh, wasn't aware of it um, But I think what Ani DeFranco was doing was more spoken word and I, really, and I really like that she was doing that This is very folk hip-hop now I don't know if I'm here for it, but it exists. <laughs> like, listening to the album, thinking about doing this thing, I hadn't thought about the way that, like, my mom listened to a lot of, like, Linda Ronstadt and Emmylou Harris and stuff when I was growing up. And so I think, um, you know, Lady with Perspective and a guitar was just sort of, like, baked into me. Um, and it, it, is it is interesting hearing those sort of, like... Um, spoken word or patter moments <laughs> from things that aren't within a tradition of hip-hop right. that now you're like, wait, is K-Star rapping during the middle of I Love Paris? Uh, go listen to K-Star's rendition of I Love Paris. She raps in the middle of it, and it's amazing. <laughs> Let's get into some of the sleeper jams off of this album. Mm -hmm. So, and especially given that this album's, you know, 20 years and, and, and going now, Guy, you mentioned earlier about coming back and listening to this album again, and I'm wondering, is there a song that maybe when you first got the album back in 98 wasn't really popping for you, but when you listen to it now, it's the song that really comes through for you? I love every song on this album. <laughs> like, um, you know, I, um, I don't really know if... That's true. I think listening to it like directly before coming here, I, I think um, like Glass House was sort of the one that was like most resonant to me because I had forgotten how much of that song is sort of in like a mournful and uncertain space before she like recenters things. And like as a writer, it's always interesting like how much time and space things take up just time wise versus like um, in your mind. For instance, we've all seen The Birdcage, and we all think of The Birdcage as being about half the rest of the movie and about half 
the dinner party with Gene Hackman and Diane Weist? And the answer is, that dinner party lasts like 15 minutes. But it's <laughs> the core of that movie. And similarly with Glass House, like her sort of like reasserting agency is your takeaway. Mm-hmm. So you don't, like, it seems like half of the song. Morgan, how about you? You have, uh, a, you have a sleeper jam off here? Yeah, Pixie. Um, Pixie is a jam because it starts off so funky, and it, it, it to me sounds like a Edie Brickell, What I Am, yeah. at the beginning. Can you play the beginning of it? I'm a paper doll, I'm a cartoon I'm a chipper, cheerful, free for all And I light up a room I'm the color me, happy girl Miss Live and Let I love that song. Uh, it's, it's a really wonderful song about femininity and while listening to it, uh, this was probably the other one that listening to it today I had a different perspective on because I realized I don't know how much of that song is Ironic. It is saying things that seem like sort of nice, sellable sentiments like, uh, you know, uh, you don't like your job, you didn't get enough sleep, everybody doesn't like their job, everybody didn't get enough sleep. And it's easy to just sort of take that as like, ha-ha, she said something funny, it's so true. But then in the larger context of this song that is about feminine performance, how much is it about shutting people up by saying you know, your perspective doesn't matter, your job is to just be pleasant at all times. Um, Yeah, it was a a more ambiguous song listening to it now than it was, you know, when I usually just listen to it. I I like it because I I like when Ani DeFranco tells us who she is and who she's not. And I think going to this album, she tells us, we learn a lot about Ani DeFranco. She says, I'm 32 flavors and then some. Like, I'm yeah. beyond. This, the song was based on Baskin Robbins. And she's like, I'm bigger than them. They're, they're, they're whack. They're 31 flavors. I'm 32. Yeah. And then saying that I'm not a pretty girl, that I am more. I'm more of an artist. So I, I love the songs that she possesses herself, her, her, what she gives. What do you think Ani's telling us about herself on this album? Well, I think that something that's so interesting is the question of, like, what is your relationship to the cliches that the world holds for you? Are you going to fight against those things? Are you going to push against those things? Are you going to allow those things to subsume you? And I think that so much of this album is about her saying, I'm not going to move. Mm -hmm. You have to move your construction. I'm going to stay exactly where I am. I am going to inhabit femininity and masculinity. And if you think, if from your perspective, any of these are reducing me, that's your fucking problem. It's not, not mine. I get to own that. And it is lovely to exist in a 2018 where we have Rachel Weisz, um, you know, in soft foot drag, uh, shooting birds with uh, Emma Stone, and we live in a richer world of, of what women are allowed to be. And I think part of that is because, um, y- you know, like sh- Ani DeFranco and, and other female performers and other femme performers took these ideas and explored them and, you know, splashed around in them. Because there's something so, like, and so as a gay person, as a fat person, there's always this question of how much do I need 
to push away from the things that will stop people from being able to see me as a human being. And having the strength to say, like, the strength to be a fat person and eat a donut in public and be like, fuck you, think what you want, is what I aspire to in my life, and it is an energy underneath this album. Uh, to that end, we did... We, yeah, shut up. We did also... Uh, we do have a, a dozen donuts, two dozen donuts in here um, in celebration of Jay Dilla's birthday and also for our subscribers. Mm-hmm. So, so eat, eat whatever you like up in here. I also wanted to mention... I wanted to give some props to Michelle Ndegio Cello, who also uh, was doing a lot of that, that same work that uh, Ani DeFranco was doing in, in song before it was popular, before it was in vogue, and before she had a lot of support to do that. She was black, queer, and playing with androgyny, so I want to give her a little yeah, bit of love for, for, her, for her place in, in the music and movement. The sleeper gem for me would be the, the end cut, which is Pulse, and I think partly because, as I was saying earlier, the, a lot of the music on this album was not stuff that I would typically listen to. Pulse comes the closest to having kind of a quantized beat, number one, and it has, if you take away the, the spoken word element to it, um, the great hook. I mean, it has a love, love the chorus, but it has this very kind of chill wave vibe to it, which I really uh, wasn't expecting, especially because it's 14 minutes it's long, long yeah. right? I mean, it's already, this is not a short album anyways, but just sitting there and having that take you out of the, the album experience, I thought was really quite extraordinary. I realized that night that the, the hall light just seemed so bright when you turned it on. Is nothing compared to the dawn, which is nothing compared to the light which seeps from me while you're sleeping. Cocooned in my room, beautiful and grotesque, resting. That night we got kicked out of two bars and left our way home. There are few, very, very few albums that I listen to in their entirety as an album experience. And I love that this has end credits that go too long. That are just like <laughs> moody and sort of like, here we are, you guys. I mean, it's sort of like a nice cool down after a workout um, where you're just in the moodiness for a while. This might be blasphemous, but it, it reminded me of the last song on College Dropout because mm. Kanye does the same thing with like a 10, 12 minute cut where it just becomes stream of consciousness right. at a certain point. Um, not to compare him to Frank on Kanye West. No, I feel you. I feel yeah. you. No, but, no, right. no, 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 no. But from a musical standpoint, right, yeah. Do you consider this album to be right on time, ahead of its time, or timeless? Oh, I think right on time. Like, if it had been later, it would have needed to mainstream some of these ideas in ways for an America that was more ready for it. And also, there's a weird way that, like, for you, those of you who are young in the audience, 1998 was weird. And there was stuff that we were, like, cool with that in 2003 we wouldn't be cool with because we were busy taking away people's civil rights so that we could tap their phones. But, like, uh, yeah, I, I think it, it needed to be... Ve- <laughs> like, if this album weren't in 1998, it would have had to be that Macklemore song about how gay marriage is okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, Guy, we asked this of all of our guests. If you had to describe this album in three words, what three words would you choose? Queer bubblegum magic. Ooh. Off the dome. I like that. That will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Guy Branham. Thank you so much for having me. Make sure you get his book, which came out a couple years ago, My Life as a Goddess. Guy, what are you working on now? Oh, 
Right now, I'm just pitching things. It's Los Angeles. We're all pitching things, right? <laughs> Where can folks find you on the socials? Oh, I am at Guy Branham on all social media platforms. Thank you, Guy, for coming out. Thank you all for coming out for tonight. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.